There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster and strategist, the man who invented the worm. Um, not the mollusk, the polling instruments where in a focus group you give people a dial in their hand and they watch a political speech or an event and they turn the dial up if they like what the person's saying and down. And this gives on the screen a visual worm. Um, I remember the first time I saw it way back. I mean, I'm not even sure the show was called The Daily Politics then. Whatever that daily politics show that was on about 15 years ago. I was just absolutely transfixed by the guy. And of course, he has advised some of the most powerful people in the world, various presidents, various leading Republicans, and he gives the benefit of that experience in some phenomenal gems of insight. Just at the start of this podcast, in case you, you should know this, in case you hear any funny noises in the background, by which I mean drilling and hammering and things like that, my neighbours next door are having work done, and I keep trying to time when I record this introduction when after a big flurry of activity in the hope that I'll be able to just record it without any noises. So if you do hear that, apologies. Um, during the interview with Frank, there was none of that because I recorded that the other day. So it's only for these bits. But just in case, you know, wherever you are, if this is an immersive audio experience, you may believe that someone is trying to tunnel through your walls. Um, that is not happening. And you may think, why has he recorded it and left it in? It's because it's basically impossible to record at any time of the day when this isn't happening. So equally, if you haven't heard it, you think, well, what's all the fusses about? Well, this is the essence of political communication then, isn't it? What a seamless link in today's conversation. Before we come on to that, don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with either strange places you've seen politicians or awkward encounters, particularly if you've embarrassed yourself in front of them but uh, anyway i think it's probably better if they've embarrassed themselves in front of you uh, simon arthur gets in touch and um he says while it's fresh in my mind in 2005-6 i was working for a newly elected liberal democrat mp and after well firstly simon congratulations on the stunning success in the cheshire and by by-election uh, he says after work at the office we had some beers if indeed simon that's where your loyalties still lie let's see where this story goes anyway after work at the office, we had some beers and ended up in a curry house. We were joined by Lembit Opic. <laughs> I mean, this story could go in any direction now, Simon. It says the conversation somehow turned to favourite Disney characters, with Lembit ever so curious and slightly demanding answers out of all present. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm trying to think about who mine, probably the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And actually... Uh, my mum always said this. I thought he was more attractive as the beast than the prince, but um, <laughs> maybe I'm just kidding myself. Uh, he said, when it came to me, I somehow got stage fright. Was it the fact that Lembert was rather well-known at that point? I can't be sure. <laughs> and a pathetic attempt at the word Aladdin feebly left my mouth. He looked at me disappointed. Simon, he was right to look at you disappointed. No one's favourite Disney character is Aladdin. I mean, at least if you're going to go for Aladdin, go for the genie. The comic relief character, if you go in Beauty and the Beast, go for Lumiere or Cogsworth. Oh, maybe it's Cogsworth. 
Yeah, I don't know why. Simon, the problem is actually, I read this email thinking, oh, what a silly thing for Lembert Opic to get all passionate about. I am now deeply animated about who my favourite Disney character is. Anyway, this is not something I discussed with Frank Luntz, um, who, for those of us who follow these things closely, is a real star. And uh, he is uh, highly influential, has fantastic political insight, and obviously has political experience beyond that, um, you know, which most of us will ever dream of, really, having advised Newt Gingrich, various Republican uh, presidents, and, of course, encountered Donald Trump. And talking about that is really interesting. And Trump's influence over the future of Republican politics as well is uh, is something that uh, Frank gives his unique take on. This is just a brilliant chat about, effectively, political psychology but i began by asking frank given his wealth of experience and all the other things that he does what i should describe his job as word guy that's it does that actually say that on your business card no because uh i think the last time i had a business card was about 10 years ago um, it's, I'm a language guy. I, I listen to how people communicate. I try to give them ideas for how they can be convincing, uh, compelling, credible. Uh, and I do it through survey research. So, um, uh, just, uh, I don't know. I don't have a language to communicate what I do, which I guess doesn't, which means I don't do it that well, I guess. The word guy doesn't have the words. No, not for me. <laughs> So what attracted you to this line of work, polling and opinion research and how to communicate with the public? So I can tell just by the opening of this that you're a pretty outgoing person, that, that uh, you, you enjoy asking questions, you enjoy engaging people. And the truth is, I'm, I'm, I'm compelled to be inquisitive, but I'm also a little bit afraid of it. So my initial introduction to polling was because I was shy and, and, uh, and a little bit afraid of people. But if I had to do it for business, if I had to do it for work, I could, I could ask people questions. And, and that combination of bringing, of making it more easy for me to function in a social setting really made a difference. Um, I love what I do and I've always loved it. And I love it more now than ever because I get a chance to understand, I get a chance to learn. And I would say to people, who listen to your podcast, it's probably the greatest opportunity of all that after having a meal, after having spending time with someone that you really get to understand something that you didn't know before, you get to learn. So every day for me is a learning experience. So what age then did you start getting into polling? Because if you're talking about shyness and things, it almost sounds like this was from childhood. Uh, it is from childhood. My very first survey for money was done at Oxford here in the UK. And my very first client was a gentleman who was running for the president of the Oxford Union and for uh, the uh, princely price of 180 quid, I did a survey of Oxford students to understand who was likely to win and, and who your second preference vote should come from. And how was I to know that my very first client would someday become the prime minister? <laughs> and that was Boris Johnson. That is correct. So 180 quid back in what I'm guessing was the 80s. Yes. Quite a lot of money for a student to be paying you. No, uh, because uh, uh, 
it was very quick. I, I understood that I actually undercharged. I underbilled. That there is that the there are people who want to understand about a particular segment of society. Uh, they want to understand either it's an election coming up, or it's a uh, business opportunity, or it's communicating about some social policy or economic policy. And I never did anything from that point on for 180 quid. I. I wouldn't walk across the street for 180 quid. Um, and it was accurate, by the way. I want to emphasize that the numbers were accurate. And did he win? Yes, he did. And he won by what he was supposed to win by. Wow, was, what a great early test. And, and the great thing was, he was such an amazing speaker. It was such a privilege to sit in the union chamber every time he stood up to speak. Uh, I was thrilled. I just, um, I never, I had never heard anyone like him or seen anyone like him. And that capability that I witnessed as an 18 or 19 year old student uh, is on full display for people. And I feel like I got my own tutorial about outstanding communication uh, long before anyone else knew that he existed. And how much has he changed since then? I can't tell because I don't know him as well as I, as I wish. I saw him several times as mayor. Uh, I, have, I saw him as foreign minister. I've seen him in the transition uh, for leadership. Uh, I've not seen him as prime minister. Um, I think that he has an ability to reach across the aisle, that he has an ability to appeal to people because he's not a traditional politician and because he is so bright and and so knowledgeable it, the one thing that really bothers me is that he gets compared to Donald Trump and there's nothing no comparison I see nothing between the two of them uh, Boris is educated and and a historian and a wordsmith a brilliant writer as well as a great communicator uh, and that is not Donald Trump. No, but they are. Uh, Boris isn't afraid to be a populist at times. He, during the Brexit referendum, whipped up fear about Turkish people coming here that was completely ungrounded. In fact, in, in the British context, he feels like someone who's perhaps pushed things a bit more. So, although I, I take your point that he's not like Trump, he's not been a, he hasn't necessarily resisted the comparison when it suited it. Well, I'll tell you, Boris is shown an ability to attract traditional labor voters far greater than any other conservative. So there's gotta be something about his presentation that working class Brits appreciate, particularly in the North who have been hostile to, uh, to conservative and conservative candidates. They're not nearly as hostile anymore. They see something in him that they appreciate. So what makes a good communicator then? Because uh, you know, Reagan is someone who was known as the great communicator. Eventually, at the start, people uh, were quite snobby about him because of his background and his, uh, you know, he'd been an actor and things, and people thought perhaps he wouldn't be that great at it. Boris faces a similar problem in that his opponents think, well, this guy's a bit of a clown, but he cuts through better than any of those people do. So some people, I think, wrongly assume that being a great communicator is speaking very clearly and having message discipline and things like that. Actually, if Boris is a great communicator, then clearly it's about something else. Oh, Tony Blair 
is a great communicator. David Cameron, at least at the beginning of his, uh, of his political career, was a great communicator. In Blair's case, I never saw someone who could explain complicated policies so concisely and do so in a way that won over people that did not necessarily agree with him or, or agree with the party, but said, you know what? This is an approach I will follow. Uh, what was awesome about Blair is that he had a clear vision for the country, a clear vision for the people and for the future. And he was able to explain it in concise and compelling ways. And David Cameron was unique in that he could disagree without being disagreeable. That in watching him, and I did not know of him, and he was at Oxford while I was there. Simon Stevens was at Oxford while I was there, the NHS head. Michael Gove was at Oxford when I was there. Jeremy Hunt, like the entire future cabinet was sitting with me at the Oxford Union. And I, if only I appreciated that, or I, if only I'd gone to William Hill and made some bets on it, I could have made some decent money. <laughs> but Cameron was the first person I'd ever seen that could disagree without alienating the people he was disagreeing with. And that's an amazing skill. Uh, Gordon Brown doesn't, didn't have that. Gordon Brown, uh, while I was here, was incredibly bright, also had a vision and a, and a purpose and a goal, but he was not able to explain it. Theresa May could not even explain Brexit or getting out of Brexit. So it doesn't matter whether you're left or right. It doesn't matter whether you are Etonian or, or from, uh, from a comprehensive. I think what matters is your ability to connect, not from you to the voter, but from the voter to you. In the end, it's not what you say that matters, it's what people hear. And Blair and Cameron and, and Boris have an ability, a, a, a unique ability to connect to the dreams and the aspirations of the public in a way that most British politicians cannot. So that distinction between what you say and what people hear, how much as the messenger are you in control of that? A hundred percent. You can ask me whatever questions you want, I'll answer. Probably I'll answer most of them because at this point in my career, if I get myself into trouble, I really don't care. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather tell you what I believe to be the case. I, I'm not gonna be so arrogant as to say to you it's the truth. I will say it's what I believe. And I will, will challenge conventional wisdom. So I can praise a, a laborite uh, and I can criticize a Tory and vice versa. Because in the end, the truth is in the eyes of the beholder. That said, there are facts, there are statistics. There, there things did happen a certain way. You can you can interpret them, them differently. And you can change the level of importance. But Brexit is a fact, for example. Brexit happened. People voted to leave Europe for better or worse. Whether they were correct in that vote is in the eyes of the beholder. But there, that is a fact. I think the greatest challenge for this country, and it's a challenge in America even worse, is that we now seek our news to affirm us rather than inform us. And so which newspapers we read are chosen, not because they're well-written, but because they tell us what we want to know from the perspective we want to receive. And that's not good. Whether it's the Guardian or the Times, the Telegraph, whether it's 
the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Wall Street Journal. We need to, as a population, really understand the truth and the facts, and we need to be willing to be challenged. And I'm afraid that we're not, and I'm afraid that that is the single greatest threat to a well-informed and an effective electorate. If you're advising a politician, then this, this, just to stay on the comms and this idea of um, what you say and what people hear are, are two different things. How does that translate then into concrete advice to a politician? How does a politician ensure that people hear what it is they're saying? Awesome. So I tell politicians to say a great question, which allows them to delay a couple of seconds. So I'm going to say to you, great question, but I'm just not trying to delay. I'm going to give you three specifics. Number one is empathy. If you want to connect to the electorate, you have to show them you understand their concerns. So in, in your case, this is, I would say, this is probably the most important question I will be asked, and it deserves a, a well-thought-out answer. Second is to focus on the problem before you get to the solution. And that is setting the context for whatever you ask me. If it's about education, it's ensuring that our, that our children can get the jobs that they want and the careers that they deserve. It's ensuring that they have the skills and talents for the 21st century. So it's an explanation. So the first one is to acknowledge the person who's asking. The second aspect is to demonstrate a knowledge of the issue. And third is to talk about the impact based on the things that you want to do. Politicians too often talk about their policies. That's not what the voters care about. They wanna know that you understand the problem from their perspective, and they wanna know the impact of your solutions on their life. Those would be the, the three keys that elected officials often don't understand and often get it wrong. And my job is to help them get it right. When you explain it like that, I immediately picture Bill Clinton in that debate against George Bush Sr. when that black woman in the audience asks him about how the recession has impacted him personally. And Bush Sr. doesn't quite understand the question, asks her to repeat it. And then Clinton's response, I've got hairs on the back of my neck thinking about it now. One of the most amazing, empathetic so responses I've ever seen. The key to a podcast, because you, you won't see me visually, you'll only hear my voice, which is awful, but it's still better than putting the voice together with a face. People say to me, I've got a voice for television and a, a face for, I got a face for radio and a voice for print. <laughs> call up, if you're listening to this podcast, call up that video on YouTube and watch it. Because it's not just that Bush doesn't understand. He actually checks his watch, which says that he doesn't care. It's not just that Bill Clinton delivered an amazing address. Watch him. He walks towards the woman. He gets up off his stool and engages her face to face. And, it's, and she starts nodding. You need to see the video to understand the power of that connection. How, how Bush Sr. did not do it, and how Bill Clinton really did understand his audience. Some people are quite can be quite cynical about polling and being led by it. New Labour faced a lot of charges in this country, particularly from uh, 
opponents on the left, that in the end, you just become a valueless desert led by public opinion and you end up just repeating back to the public the things they want to hear. And then in the end, there's a sense that you don't stand for anything. That's obviously a genuine risk. So how do you balance the skills that you describe there with a kind of consistency of values and actually standing for something? You don't balance it. Either you have it or you don't. Does Tony Blair have a philosophy? Absolutely. He has a philosophy. He knows how to articulate it. And he knows how to get it done. So he's got all three. Uh, arguably, the people who came after him did not. Uh, you could poll whatever you wanted with, uh, with Theresa May, and it would not have mattered. It do, it would, whatever you handed to her would not have mattered. She, is, she was not that kind of, of politician. She was not that kind of leader. So I would not look at, I would not blame the polling for this. I blame the candidates for this. Either they have something inside or they don't. And polling does not help um, the bad candidate become good. And polling by the sake of, of trying to understand how best to communicate does not take a, someone who's visionary and make them a bad person. Polling is neutral. Language development is neutral. The person is not. So it's up to the person to decide what they're willing to say and how they're willing to say it. Theresa May is a really good example of a case study. So she's obviously a very different prospect to Boris Johnson. If you're advising Theresa May in that election campaign about how best to win it and how best to communicate with the public, what would you have advised her? Yeah. I, could, I don't think I could have advised her because she is, she's a... a she was chosen as the best individual to transition Britain to a different process vis-a-vis -vis Europe. But she was unable to unite a country. And I don't believe that you necessarily work for someone simply because they are the party leader, simply because they are leader of the country. I don't know. I only met her once. I met her in the States. Uh, and she was very kind to me. But I don't know what, what, how you advise someone who is about administering rather than dreaming or envisioning or imagining a better future. I, she is not, and by the way, she's honest and she's down to earth and she's approachable, although she doesn't, she really doesn't engage that much. But She's not a bad person. She's not a great communicator, but she's a good person. And I don't know how I would advise someone like that because there is none of that give and take. There's no other. You need someone who's got curiosity. You need someone who's, who's got an idea of what they want to achieve and they're simply looking for a better way to achieve it. I, so I don't know what I would have said to her and I don't think I ever would have been in that position. I'll, I'll keep, let me give you an example. I've never said this publicly because I deeply, deeply regret one individual who I had the chance to help and I didn't. And that's Angela Merkel. She's a, a legitimately historic individual. She had some of the toughest challenges that any national leader ever had. 
they offered me the chance, I, why I said to you about cost, and they offered me the chance to do a survey, and they said they would pay me 15,000 bucks for it. And I turned them down because it would have cost me more than 15,000 today. What I was paid 185 quid for, so doing the, doing the, uh, the, the conversion would have been 11,000 pounds, and I didn't do it. And I regret it so much because I should have done it for free. I should have said, what an honor, what a privilege. You are changing in a good way, the face of Europe. I should donate the money. Um, that's someone that you can make a difference with. Now she's not friendly. She's not engaging. Uh, it will not be fun. But my God, when you get a chance to do something truly historic with a, with a historic individual, you never say no. And I regret it to this day. I mean, I'm going to try and make you feel better about it. There's a chance you might be able to work with her in the future. Her tenure is done. I think she attends the G7. Uh, I was invited to go up there tonight, and I turned it down because it's a six-hour car ride. Not to meet her, to do uh, Good Morning uh, Britain. Yeah. But I did not want to be in a car, and I assure you I would get nowhere near the level of security there. Uh, is is unprecedented, and and uh, just to be in the same town as her is, is not meaningful to me. But I have had the chance to spend time with with uh, Tony Blair. I've had the chance to spend time. I've met every British Prime Minister since Harold Macmillan, which is a very cool thing to say. That is very very cool. Most Brits haven't done that, and yeah. I've done. It. Uh, but um, I, I say to people listening to this. The, it's not about monetary. It's not about money. It's about meaning. And that's probably the most important lesson I can give you. And usually this would be the final question, but I'm thinking of it now. If you're looking for monetary gain, then mine is not the profession you go into. If you're looking for meaning, then I don't know any other profession that, that is more involved than that of language creation and public opinion. Uh, and we need more meaning and we need less focus on money to make us a better society. This is a total um, sort of side route. I don't know if you read Gareth Southgate's article recently, the England manager, the England football manager wrote an article. There's been a whole thing in this country about England players taking the knee before kickoff, solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and a, a section of the England support a minority booing it when it's happened. And obviously we're about to go into this football tournament. By the time people listen to this tournament will have started. But he has written, I'll send you the link if you haven't read it. It's yes, one of the do. best pieces of communication I think I've ever read. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's heartfelt. It's so delicate with its language, but its impact is incredible. And it's, it's a real lesson in how you can have huge impact whilst avoiding superlatives. You don't have to use kind of big, you know, it doesn't have words like amazing and wonderful in it. It's just straightforward and its impact is incredible. It's a phenomenal lesson in language. I just wondered if you'd seen it while you've been over here. I heard about it and you need to send it, please send yeah. it to me. And, and viewers should pull it up themselves. Now, the reason why I often people say to me, who are the best communicators? The coaches, the managers are great communicators because every single day, their responsibility is to actually motivate people to action. It is even more than the politician. Politicians trying to survive to the next election. 
the coach or the manager has a game day responsibility. So they know the impact of their language and they have to bring out something that the players don't necessarily know. The truth is the best communicators are the sports managers. The worst communicators are the sports people themselves. And here's why. The manager is about everyone else. The sports celebrity is about themselves. And so they're thinking of what matters to them. The manager's figuring out what matters to the entire team. And so I listen in the US when a football coach speaks, I pay attention to it. When a player speaks, I ignore it. <laughs> I just want to return, and it's not specifically about Theresa May, but I guess it, I just, I'd be interested. Let's think of a hypothetical candidate then that is awkward, that is up against a more charismatic opponent. What should a less charismatic, more awkward candidate do to connect with the public? Should one make a virtue of it? I remember Gordon Brown saying, I'm a serious man and there's a lot to be serious about. And that worked for him for a while. Should you play to that? Or should you try and soften a bit? Or is it no, next Be who you are. So this is probably going to surprise you, but be authentic. That if you attempt to create an image that you're an intellectual when you never went to university and you really don't know, um, you will fail. When you attempt to demonstrate compassion and you really don't care about people, individuals figure it out. You have to be authentic and turn it in to your favor. So Gordon Brown saying, I'm a serious guy with much to be serious about. Sure he is. And that is, is better for him. The problem with Brown was that in 2010, his seriousness was not appreciated. The public had had enough. Brown, for Gordon Brown, that message would have worked in 2008 when he considered going right to an election. By 2010, the public was serious about not being serious about him. So it was too late. It's about timing. It's about priorities. It is about authenticity. And it's also about execution. You've worked with a number of globally influential people, as you say, you're at Oxford with Boris Johnson. You worked with Rudy Giuliani on two of his mayoral campaigns. Yes, he was a very different man back then. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Has he changed or was he always like this and we just didn't know it? Uh, yes, he has changed. He has changed a lot and it is not, uh, he's not the guy that I remember. And what caused that change? Is it just the effect that Donald Trump had on sections of the Republican community or was he already on a trajectory? No, I think Rudy Giuliani sees things in Trump that he saw in himself which is the idea of trying to do the right thing against all sorts of public opposition. And that Rudy saw Trump as a victim of the press, as he saw himself. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that Trump caused his problems rather than representing them. But I think these are questions that are better asked of him than they are of me, but uh, I understand why Trump is such a strong supporter. Sorry, why Giuliani was such a strong supporter. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. And Newt Gingrich is someone you worked closely with. He was obviously <coughs> uh, 
Speaker of the House when Clinton was president, a hugely influential figure in that period of American politics and tries to become president himself. Did, did he always stay fairly consistent, Gingrich, or did, did he change as well? No, he was. He's, he had guts and he was always uh, focused on the principles and the policies. And I, one of the things I loved about Gingrich is that he wanted to debate without any interventions. He wanted simply, he'll sit down with any opponents and they'll talk it out, which I think is amazing. And I think it's important. <clears throat> the problem is you don't talk about orphanages two weeks before Christmas. You don't talk about welfare reform during a time of economic distress. The timing was not always right, but I, I've never worked for a smarter individual in politics than Newt Gingrich. I learned more in two hours with him than I learned in an entire semester at school. The man's brilliant uh, and he still is. And, and it, it, that was a joy. He was not the best communicator because he would communicate policy he communicated from the head to a population that wanted to be reached from the heart. So that was a challenge for him. But boy, was he good at what he did. It's interesting, some of those Republican figures of that era have been reassessed perhaps by um, some of their opponents to the left, particularly George W. Bush and Mitt Romney, who in the Trump era were outspoken used their platform to try and stop Trump becoming the Republican candidate and to try and stop him becoming president. And I think that made swathes of the population that perhaps hadn't appreciated some of their characteristics before really appreciate them now. I know in the wake of Romney's defeat to Barack Obama, you were, I, I, I don't want to use the words badly affected, but I, I think Romney's defeat, if I'm right, shook you a bit. No, not at the time. Uh, because I didn't really understand how special, once again, you got, you got a, a good question, but I don't know how much your readers will get or how much your viewers will get that. But Brock, uh, uh, Mitt Romney is one of the most incredible individuals as a human being of, of anyone I've ever known. An amazing relationship with his family a commitment to character, honest as the day is long. And he got such a bad reputation. And Donald Trump is exactly the opposite, is respected and revered among some Republicans for his business acumen. Romney was the real deal and Donald Trump was not. And I didn't understand that until I got to know Trump um, and got to know Mitt Romney better and actually something that you would not know, is that I publicly apologized to Romney at, at an event where there were several hundred people there where they gave me the microphone and gave me the chance to do it. And then people gave him a standing ovation that lasted about 90 seconds. And I'm grateful for that. Because there are times when we really don't understand and don't know about the people that either we praise or criticize. And we all need to be much more careful about what we say and much more careful about what we think, because sometimes the truth is more complicated than what we realize. 
And sometimes it requires us to reevaluate what we believe, we reevaluate what we think, and in this case, to reevaluate an individual who I had misjudged and minimalized, and I now realize what an amazing human being he is. Now, if a Trump person is listening to this, they will dismiss me, and Mitt Romney's a loser. No, he's not. Mitt Romney's a winner in life, and he may never have been president. But what a great human being he is. So what did you have to apologize to him for? I felt nothing. The answer is truthfully nothing, except I wanted to do it. I wanted him to know that there were people, because Trump is just ripping him and ripping him and ripping him. And I wanted him to know in front of his colleagues, in front of his peers, in front of uh, his friends, I wanted the world to know that there are those of us in this profession who knew the truth and were willing to speak the truth, no matter what the opposition. So it was just important to me. And how did he take it? Uh, His wife cried. His wife was there and she actually shed a tear. And, uh, And I did the same thing with Jeb Bush in a much smaller setting because there just wasn't a bigger setting. But the two people that, that Donald Trump ripped, Jeb Bush was the best governor of my lifetime, did more good for Florida than any other governor. And Mitt Romney was one of the best people to move from business into politics of anyone that I knew. And I want the world to know it. No matter what Donald Trump says, these are not just good people, these are great people. So when Trump came along, Elements of the Republican community were beguiled by him. Others were repelled. Was there any part of you that was open to working with him at all? Absolutely. And I met with him. I had lunch in the Oval Office. I flew on Air Force One. I went to uh, Camp David and I met with him a few times. And it was always very difficult. He's the president of the United States. I respect the office. He was much more knowledgeable than I expected. He knew the details much more than he let on. He was very, he had had an inability to focus. He was constantly jumping from issue to issue, topic to topic. That part of him is is what you see is what you get. But he knew his stuff. My issue was that he really dismissed the stuff that I would suggest to him. He really didn't, he didn't value it. And, uh, And in fact, he would ridicule it. But uh, even now, I'm providing the Biden administration guidance on how to get Trump voters vaccinated. Our country is more important than our party. Our future is more important than our present. Our commitment to working together is more important than a commitment to elect one side or the other. I take this stuff really seriously. I was blessed with a skill in language that I'm trying to apply in the best way possible. I have an ideology. But in the end, I'm loyal to, to the philosophy of doing the most good for the most people. And I believe in the special relationship. I love it here. I love London. And I want you to avoid the ugliness that we have in America right now. And just one last quick final thing. How much influence does Donald Trump have, have over what the Republicans do next and who the candidate is? A tremendous amount of influence. He will never be the president. He can never win an election. More than half of America despises him. But among Republicans, more than half of the Republicans will go to the end of the earth to defend him. 
He will win a nomination if he runs for president again, but he will never be elected to that office. Frank, this has been an absolute treat, uh, picking your brains about your vast experience and your political judgment. Enjoy the rest of your time in London. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers, Frank. Frank Luntz, what an absolute treat. Hopefully I'll be able to get Frank on uh, at some point again in the future because there's so many more things, obviously, <laughs> that I would have liked to have talked to him about, but absolutely superb. And you can see why he became an indispensable part of Republican politics for many years because he's able to tap into public opinion, explain what it means, and then crucially give the advice to the politicians that you then talk to politicians, and I thought that answer about how politicians should react, how politicians should communicate, really was the best. And I think for any politicians listening, there are there are gems to be found in there. Well, thank you so much for downloading this. There are some brilliant guests uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Leave a review. Send us an email, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.